0: You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast.
1: Monsters are as old as humanity itself. Monsters embody our fears. Yet, they help us define the boundaries of what it means to be human. We know most monsters aren't real. Yet, we can use monsters to learn about reality, psychology, biology, folklore, literature, critical thinking. We're on a journey to learn about the world through the lens of monsters and we hope you'll come along with us. Subscribe at monstertalk.org.
0: Get ready to geek out. The Wired Science Podcast explores all the latest and greatest in science, everything from strange diseases and biological breakthroughs to interesting tech and mysteries in outer space. Listen to Wired Science today wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts.
2: The scientific method has given us germ theory, the understanding of the atom, a model for photosynthesis, as well as unlocking the secrets of how stars work.
3: And without germ theory, we wouldn't be able to explain the origins of the cold that you have right now.
2: Well, I, I guess it was germs. Anyhow, this is all the result of theory, experiment, trial, and error. But sometimes, things get stuck on error. Whoa.
4: Darn! It's always hard for a historian of science to sit back and say this was a blunder because many things that seemed perfectly like a good idea at the time now seem like a lot of blunders.
2: I'm Molly Bentley. This is our
3: monthly look at critical thinking from Big Picture Science, Skeptic Check.
2: I'm Seth Shostak, and we'll take a look at scientific blunders in this program. Remember cold fusion? Also, how to tell fumbles from faux science from fraud. But
3: first... Brains on vacation. Hey, this time off is just what I needed. Could you pass the sunblock? My medulla's getting a bit
4: pink. Watch the sand. Grit in your hippocampus is a bummer.
3: Ah, I can feel my neurons relaxing already. When our cerebellums go on extended lunch break, Skeptic Phil Plate gently nudges them back to work. In this case, a recent article in the Journal of Cosmology made an extraordinary claim that a meteorite found in Sri Lanka in December 2012 contained evidence of life, presumably from another world.
2: A group headed by Chandra Wikrama Singh, the director of the Buckingham Center for Astrobiology at the University of Buckingham, claims to have found proof of extraterrestrial biology.
3: But astronomer Phil Plate not only raises a skeptical eyebrow at the claim of alien life, but at the origins of the rock in which it was supposedly found.
2: So Phil, evidence for life in space, but really literally life in space, born on a chunk of rock from the sky?
1: Yeah, not so much as it turns out. Uh what we found here is actually evidence for life, but not in space, and maybe didn't even come from space. And what I'm talking about is a paper that came out by a man named Wick Ramazing and a team of other scientists who claim to have found diatoms in a meteorite. And diatoms are really simple plant life, like algae, that surround themselves with a hard shell, like silica, like sand. And they, they have this paper, and there are pictures in the paper, and it looks like diatoms are stuck in this rock.
2: Okay, so this paper comes out with some photos of, uh, what, the inside of this meteorite? And there are these little diatom-looking things in there? That's right, and we've seen stuff like this before.
1: The original Mars rock from 1996 had things in it that looked like they could have been alive at some time and there have been reports like that since but nothing like this nothing that shows what really do you know when you look at these pictures hey they look like diatoms but there's a a series of problems with this claim one is that they say uh, there's no chance that the rock could have been contaminated from earthly diatoms and and that's just simply not true Uh, they claim that these things are fossilized and therefore very old but there's no evidence that these things are actually fossilized. They could have been stuck in there for minutes or days or weeks. We just don't know. And there's a lot of other things like that that are wrong with this analysis as well. Well, I'm told that these photos
2: are pretty convincing. I mean, here's here's a microscopic bit of that rock, and you see these little diatomic kind of things. I mean, they look pretty neat. They look like, I don't know, they're clearly biological, okay. But the usual worry is indeed contamination, by you know the fact that this rock has sat on the ground for a long time, and I don't know, rainwater has gotten into it, mud has gotten into it, somebody's gotten into it. Uh, how long was this rock sitting on the ground?
1: Well, they claim they got to this rock right after it fell. There was a bright meteor that was seen on December 29, 2012, and they got to it relatively quickly, sent it back for analysis, and, and therefore there couldn't have been time for it to be embedded with diatoms. Now, that may be all well and good, but the big problem with this entire paper is they don't really prove that this is a meteorite. They just said they went to the site, they found this rock and picked it up, And then they just kind of claim it's a meteorite, but they claimed it was part of the Blarney Stone or the tip of the pyramid or anything. They don't prove it's a meteorite. They don't prove it's from this particular fall. And given that it has these diatom-like things in it, you know, it's up to them to show that this is absolutely 100% a meteorite from this known meteor event.
2: Well, they saw it in the sky, but, but nobody saw it fall and land there where they picked it up, right?
1: That's correct. And there's no indication in the paper that they uh, triangulated on this, that they had multiple eyewitnesses to show which direction the meteor came in so that they could try to figure out where this thing fell. They just claimed they went to this town and they looked down, they saw a black rock and they picked it up. And then the next thing you know, it's a meteorite. But, you know, I can I can go out at night and see. A, a shooting star in the sky and then pick up a rock in my backyard and claim it's a meteorite. And my claim is just as strong as the one in this
2: paper. But surely they must have shown this rock to a meteorite specialist. There are plenty of people who study these things and can say, look, that's a rock and that's a meteorite and that's a rock and that's a... Right?
1: Y- you know, you'd think. Uh, but <laughs> again, they didn't do it. They picked up the rock and then they just sent it back to their own team for analysis. And you'd think if you're making a claim that is one of the most momentous scientific claims in history, you might want to go to an outside source and say, hey, is this a meteorite? Have we established that this is the correct rock from this fall? They didn't even go to an outside source to analyze these diatoms. I did. I called Patrick Kosiolik, who is a specialist in diatoms, and he said that Every picture that he sees in this paper is a known freshwater terrestrial diatom. So clearly, you know, unless some evolutionary craziness happened and these things evolved on a comet someplace out in the solar system, you know, these are clearly earthly organisms that got into this rock, which may not even be a meteorite in the first place, and I'm guessing is not. It doesn't even look like one from the picture they show in the paper.
2: So, Phil, not... Death from the skies, but life from the skies sounds as if you're unconvinced.
1: Well, I wouldn't even say life from the skies. I'd say that this is definitive evidence of life on Earth, but I think we already knew that.
2: <laughs> Phil Plate, thank you so much. Thank you, Seth. Join us next month for Brains on Vacation. Is that Sarah
5: Bellum over there? What a dish.
3: Astronomer Phil Plait is a skeptic for the great Slate magazine blog, badastronomy.com. Okay, well, it's only natural to get excited about a revolutionary scientific discovery, especially if you're the scientist who made it.
2: But even eggheads can crack at times and celebrate their findings prematurely.
3: Cold fusion has become an iconic example of how science can go off the rails. In 1989, chemists Martin Fleischman and Stanley Pons announced that they had found a new way to generate energy. Their extraordinary claim was followed by this media spectacle and, ultimately, a disappointing ending.
2: Now, here's the deal. The two researchers were doing electrolysis, and that's something you might remember from high school chemistry. You know, you stuck two metal rods—they're called electrodes—into a jar of salt water, and then you connect the rods to a battery— Pretty soon, you saw bubbles of oxygen coming up around one of the electrodes and hydrogen bubbles coming up from the other. So what was happening? Well, you were just breaking up some of the water molecules, H2O, into their constituent atoms, H and O, hydrogen and oxygen. It's just chemistry. It's not nuclear fusion. That claim comes in a moment.
3: But Pons and Fleischmann made a slight variation on this experiment. Instead of salt water, they used what's called heavy water, in which some of the hydrogen atoms in the water molecules had nuclei not just of a proton, but a proton and a neutron. Now that form of hydrogen is called deuterium, and it's the kind of hydrogen that's used in bombs.
2: Okay, it still sounds like a chemistry experiment, but Pons and Fleischmann said that their setup was producing more energy than they were putting in with their battery. They claimed that nuclear fusion, that is that some of the deuterium atoms were were coming together, were fusing and turning into a new atom of helium, that that somehow was going on. And if it were true it would release tremendous amounts of energy.
3: Now, fusion normally requires incredibly complicated equipment working at tens of millions of degrees. But this experiment could fit on a tabletop and run at room temperature.
2: So if it really was cold fusion, well, that would change the world. Cheap energy for all. David
3: Goodstein, a physicist at the California Institute of Technology, says that Martin Fleischmann, who died in August 2012, and Stanley Pons were good scientists but their science announcement was premature.
2: David, normally when you think of fusion, I mean, because there are a lot of fusion experiments out there trying to make cheap energy for our descendants and so forth, but they they try and push hydrogen atoms together to make helium. You get a lot of energy out of that. But, But these things require, you know, giant lasers and enormous temperatures, millions and millions of degrees and so forth. They're not tabletop experiments. This was a tabletop
6: experiment, wasn't it? Yes, it was. It was the electrolysis of water-containing deuterium with palladium and platinum electrodes. What you're saying is that they had essentially a, a bottle,
2: a jar, or something of water, but a special kind of water, heavy water?
6: Yes, that's right.
2: And they put some of these metals in there, palladium, whatever, and then that caused hydrogen to fuse to uh, helium? That's what they claimed. But they were doing chemistry, not high-energy physics.
6: Yes, they, they were chemists, that's right. So does that make any
2: sense from the standpoint of a physicist?
6: Well, no, it makes no sense whatsoever, but it's always possible that they've discovered something entirely new. You've got to suspend disbelief and look into it.
2: Okay, so how did they announce this? And My recollection is, this was back in 1989, they just had a press conference.
6: Yeah, they, they were afraid they were going to be scooped by a guy named Jones down the road at Brigham Young University. And so they held a press conference in order to get it on the record that they had done it first. But
2: that's not the usual way you announce a scientific result. Oh, no, it certainly isn't. Well, well tell me what, what you think they should have done. I mean, I, I can understand the competitive pressure. There's always that in science, though.
6: Yes, that's right. Well, they should have published a paper, a good paper, describing what they had done in detail.
2: Was the press conference followed by publication? Yeah, it
6: was, they published a paper, but it was not a very good paper. It didn't describe the experiment in detail enough for people to reproduce it. Okay,
2: so, but let me get back to this because this caused big news. I mean, normally when scientists go to the media and say, hey, we've made this discovery, you know, the science writers from some papers will take a look at that. But in general, most media outlets are not real keen to write this sort of stuff up. They figure the public isn't interested, but everybody was interested in this. It must have had
6: big implications. Yeah, it had very big implications. It implied that we would solve the energy problem for the world and the fiscal problems of the University of Utah as well.
2: So they were doing this at the University of Utah? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) Well, tell me how it would solve the energy problems of the world. I mean, elaborate on that a bit.
6: Well, every gallon of seawater contains enough deuterium to replace 300 gallons of gasoline if you could make them fuse into helium. So their discovery would permit the use of seawater instead of gasoline as a primary source of fuel, and then we'd have enough fuel to last forever.
2: This would solve the energy problem in one, one blow, as it were. Yes, this would solve the energy problem in one blow, that's right. Change the world. So, all right, you're, you're sitting at home, you, you hear this press conference, you see this press conference, you read about this press conference. You're, you're a scientist. What's your reaction?
6: Well, my reaction is to go into the laboratory and try it myself. Did you actually do that? Uh, no, I didn't do that, but, but people I know did. And, Well, the people at Caltech who did found nothing at all. And they announced that five weeks later and put a stop to the whole circus. Uh, Another friend of mine in Italy tried it and succeeded. And he still believes that cold fusion is real.
2: So somebody's still working on this.
6: Yes, there are people all over the world still working on it.
2: Okay, so if you had to tell people at a cocktail party how science decides what's right and wrong, because... I think many members of the public figure it's a matter of you know, voting by scientists or, or, or maybe voting by the public or watching some you know, television show and deciding it that way. I mean, how does science go about deciding whether some new result is, is for real or just you know, chopped liver?
6: Well, the cold fusion was an extreme case of pathological science, of science going, going haywire. It doesn't usually happen that way. Usually people will report a result, other people will try it out and either confirm it or disprove it, and then you go on from there. But cold fusion was a special case. It was a, a singularity.
2: What sense was it a singularity?
6: Well, it promised so much and uh, it delivered so little.
2: I see. So uh, this has sort of become a poster child for science gone wrong.
6: Yes, it has. That's right.
2: But isn't science self-correcting? I, I suppose it did correct itself, but... You know, so why all the criticism? People make mistakes.
6: Well, people make mistakes, but Pons and Fleischman were never convinced that they had made a mistake. And the, the other side, the people from Caltech, Kunin, and Barnes, and Lewis, were never convinced that they hadn't made a mistake. And so it became a tug of war.
2: So if you had to bet whether cold fusion was real or not, you'd bet against it. And this is on the basis of, I mean, other groups trying to replicate this experiment. I mean, it wasn't just Caltech, right?
6: It wasn't just Caltech, no. Uh, Everybody who tried to replicate the experiment either got positive results and held a news conference or got no results and quietly went on to other things. That's a terrible way of doing science because uh, you don't get a clear view of what's going on.
2: Well, if we put you in charge of the cold fusion world, what would you have told people to do?
6: Uh, To try it and tell us whether they succeeded or not. But it sounds
2: like they did try it.
6: Well, the guys at Caltech tried it and told us. The other people around the world who tried it and failed didn't tell us.
2: Oh, I see. Okay, so you're saying that, in fact, there there were a lot more negative results than positive ones, but the negative ones were just not published.
6: Yes, that's right. And there have been some positive results since then, but they're sporadic. They're not dependable. They They don't work every time. And as long as they don't work every time, it's not a useful product.
2: Well, finally, David, would you typify the whole cold fusion event as bad science or just wrong science, and what would the difference be?
6: Well, I don't know that it's bad science or wrong science. It could still turn out to be right. We don't know yet, so I I won't pass judgment on it.
2: But you're betting for or against it?
6: Well, I'd bet against it, but that's my prejudice. All right. (laughs)
2: Well, David Goodstein, thank you so very much for talking with me.
6: Oh, it's my pleasure.
3: David Goodstein is a physicist at the California Institute of Technology. Does that close the book on cold fusion? Has it been thoroughly discredited?
2: Well, I would not say thoroughly discredited. There are still some research groups who think that something was going on that uh, we still don't quite understand, but something was going on that might still be useful in producing energy, that there's some sort of low-energy nuclear process going on there that Pons and Fleischmann didn't recognize, but that might still turn out to be incredibly important. So there are some groups still working on it.
3: And maybe one day it's possible that Fleischmann and Pons will be vindicated.
2: You know, it could happen. It could happen.
3: Well, you can imagine that it would be quite exciting to believe that you've solved the world's energy
2: problems. Yep. And uh, Fleischmann and Pons were not the only scientists who've been susceptible to early experiment-induced excitement. Coming up, more from the science bloopers reel and how to separate those oops moments from outré science or outright fraud. It's Skeptic Check from Big Picture Science.
0: So stay updated with the award-winning journalism from Wired. Listen to what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's what's new with Wired wherever you get your podcasts.
2: Science marches on and it has been enormously successful helping us understand that the earth pirouettes around the sun not the other way around and that the atom is mostly empty space. And that heredity is neatly packaged in strands of winding DNA.
3: But even during that steady march, there have been stumbles. But mistakes in science are important for revealing what we thought we knew but then came to know that we didn't know, which is
2: knowledge. And on Skeptic Check, our monthly look at critical thinking on big-picture science, we're looking at some of those fumbles and also separating them out from other misdirection in science, faux science, even fraud. Michael Gordon is an historian of science at Princeton University.
3: And author of The Pseudoscience Wars, Emmanuel Velikovsky and the Birth of the Modern Fringe.
2: Michael, we heard earlier in the show about cold fusion, lots of criticism and an initial failure to confirm the results. There have been a number of blunders in science. Why is the cold fusion
4: case kind of a poster child? Well, the cold fusion case raises a bunch of other issues beyond the level of blunder. For one, it was announced at a press conference, which raises a whole level of What's the proper role of announcing scientific discoveries? Should we publish them through peer-reviewed journals? Can press and funding agencies and university administrators decide that? And then there's the issue of, was it fraud? So some people can be wrong, and then some people can be manipulating their data in a way that is beyond the canons of ethics or proper investigation. And that raises a whole host of extra issues that kind of shine the spotlight on cold fusion as a particular kind of scientific episode.
2: As an historian, you probably have
4: uh, encountered many blunders in science. Do you have any favorites? Actually, there are several favorites. But it's always hard for a historian of science to sit back and say this was a blunder because many things that seemed perfectly like a good idea at the time now seem like a lot of blunders. So good example of this is, say, Galileo's presentation to the church about why the Earth moved around the sun. And he thought he had a great explanation for this, which was that you can tell that the earth moved around the sun because that explained the tides. And he had this very elaborate theory of the tides, which it turns out is completely wrong. And it was demonstrated to be completely wrong at the time, and it's part of the reason that the church authorities did not find his argument persuasive. So. Galileo was right on the big question, wrong on the small question. And so it's a certain kind of blunder.
2: You know, these blunders, of course, are are great fun to look back. and, And, you know, a lot of people will make fun of Percival Lowell, for example, who 100 years ago was writing about the canals on Mars, which we later found out didn't exist. And yet that's the way science progresses, isn't it? I mean, you know, making a blunder is just part of the process.
4: Part of the point of how science works is that people look at the data that's out there, either experiments people have done or other theories, and say, that doesn't sound quite right to me. That sounds like a mistake. Let me fix it. Or they say, that's not new enough. There's more to be learned here. Let me deepen it. And when they try to find something new, they try to look for a new particle. turns out that particle isn't there, but that doesn't mean they don't see it. A good example of this is the discovery of n-rays, which is this wonderful episode at the very turn of the 20th century. There's a French physicist who is very excited by this discovery from Vienna of X-rays, invisible rays that permeate everything. You can make photos of the bones in your hand. And he thinks he's discovered a new one called N-rays. He names them that after his hometown of Nancy in France. And he has this prism that will focus these rays. And he believes that you can see when you put a block of wood in it, that it radiates light and makes certain phosphorescent things glow more and he publishes articles tons of people replicate this experiment and people believe that this phenomenon is really there and then an american physicist whose name is actually wood shows up and secretly removes the piece of wood from the focusing device and the physicist blondelau can still see the effect so the effect was in his mind not in the world but it was extremely hard for him and for other scientists to see that
2: well okay so You know, blunders are, I mean, inevitable if you're doing science, if you're examining the unknown, either with new ideas, new theoretical ideas and so forth, or you're just trying to verify a theory you have, of course, there are going to be mistakes. But that's not really the same as pseudoscience,
4: is it? I mean, blundering and pseudoscience are really two different phenomena? Absolutely. Pseudoscience is an odd term. And let me explain why I think that's a strange thing, and it's somewhat different from blunders. Anybody can make an honest mistake. And usually when that happens, a scientist who reads this mistaken article publishes a refutation of it, the first person realizes that they're wrong, and things move on. Pseudoscience is a term that scientists use to classify doctrines that aren't just wrong science. There's plenty of wrong science out there. Uh, inheritance of acquired characteristics, Lamarckian evolution, that the earth is the center of the universe and that the sun revolves around the earth. There are plenty of bad ideas or wrong ideas that people no longer label pseudoscientific. We save that term for stuff that's somehow offensive or threatening, things that look a lot like science but are really disturbingly wrong and wrong in a way that's not just mistaken. You say looks like science but it's not. G- give me an example of that. Well, the people who decide what science is, is quite reasonably the set of scientists working on a question. So parapsychology shows us some of the features of this. A man named J.B. Ryan doing experiments at Duke discovered that certain people were able to predict what was behind an overturned card. They could see the pattern of the shape on it at a much greater rate than chance, or at least statistically significant rate a greater rate than chance. He published this in open journals. At first there's a conversation about it. Maybe this is real, maybe there's actually a telepathy effect. That looks a lot like science. There's protocols, there's statistics, there's all the things you would expect. And then people try replicating the experiments and they don't get the same result. And then they find something fishy about the methodology. That doesn't mean Ryan was being dishonest at all. It's just that Ryan was pursuing a line of inquiry that people believed was bankrupt or wasn't going to go anywhere. When Ryan persisted in following that, thinking other people were being close-minded, other people went around and labeled him a pseudoscientist. He moved from just having made a mistake in their eyes to being someone who has moved into a different domain altogether, the domain of the fringe of the pseudoscientific. It sounds like uh, people who are
2: promoting ideas that are labeled as pseudoscience, are indeed occasionally being persecuted, uh, whether justified or not. You've written a lot about Immanuel Velikovsky, and he's had a great uh, deal of effect on on this whole question of pseudoscience. Maybe you could
4: tell me what Velikovsky did and why it was so controversial. Absolutely. Velikovsky was born in 1895 uh, in the Russian Empire, but he ends up emigrating through complicated circumstances to New York right at the dawn of World War II. In 1950, he published a best-selling book called Worlds in Collision. He published it with a major scientific press, Macmillan Press, which was the leading publisher of science textbooks in the US at the time. And The argument of the book is somewhat sensational. He thinks that if you read all of the collected myths of humanity and legends, that is religious myths from South Asia, East Asia, the Mayans, but especially Egyptian and Babylonian texts and those of the Hebrew Bible, you come to see repeated patterns, things like fire raining from the heavens, stones from the sky, earthquakes, massive flooding. What, Velikovsky asked, if all of those particular things were real, they're not metaphors or hallucinations, they're actual eyewitness testimony for a catastrophic event that affected everybody in the globe at the same time, which is why we see the same stuff everywhere. And He thinks what happened is that a comet was shot out of Jupiter, and then sometime around 1500 BC, it careens towards Earth, gets trapped in gravitational and electromagnetic interaction with Earth, causing disruptions, fracturing the Earth's crust, tilting the Earth's axis a bit, and eventually settles down into Venus. It becomes our nearest planetary neighbor. That is, Venus was born in front of the collective witness of humanity around 1500 BC. It's a big claim. And for it to be true, just about everything that we know and knew in 1950 about celestial mechanics, paleontology, geology, not to mention ancient history, would have to be wrong. But he published it, and because of its very engaging style, because of the excitement of its claims, because of the fact that it looked like it brought science and religion into conversation, it sold like hotcakes. And not just that. It sold like hotcakes in part because of how the scientists interacted with it. Even before it was published, when it was just being advertised, a series of astronomers and other physicists uh, began to write to the press saying, this is crackpot material. This guy is a crank. It's pseudoscientific. You shouldn't publish it given that you are a scientific press. They published it anyway. They uh, sold quite a few copies, but within months of it coming out, scientists had independently written to the press threatening to boycott the books. And that caused the Macmillan to freak out a little bit. They abandoned the book, transferring its copyright to Doubleday, a publisher that couldn't be boycotted because it had no textbooks. And as a result, this guy who was on the fringes making a claim that just about every single establishment astronomer and physicist would think was pseudoscientific was also persecuted. It's not that he wasn't persecuted, but that is almost unconnected to the fact that he was considered wrong.
2: But not all of the proponents of pseudoscience are so innocent, right? I mean, there are some charlatans out there, aren't there? People who claim to have ESP or that say they can find, you
4: know, water in your backyard using a a stick, stuff like that. There are certainly people who have claimed they can do various kinds of things like bend things with their mind or find water in the backyard. The question of whether those claims are credible and whether they're sincere That's pretty hard to tease out. A lot of these people that I've looked into, they're incredibly sincere. They really believe they can do these things. Mainstream science thinks it's absolutely impossible and there's good reasons that mainstream science thinks that. But in some cases, and those are rare cases, we can actually document that they don't mean what they say and they're in it for a quick buck. That makes me want to ask what the difference is between pseudoscience and fraud. the difference between pseudoscience and fraud is actually an interesting question. Fraud seems to me to require a level of intent. That's a, almost a legal category that you tried to do something, you claimed you could do something that you actually cannot do. And that might be a subset of pseudoscientific claims if pseudoscience are those things that look like science and act like science but just aren't. But that doesn't mean that all pseudoscientists or all people who are labeled pseudoscientists are guilty of fraud. So what might be fraud in, in contrast to pseudoscience? Well, within the last decade, there was this researcher in South Korea who claimed that he could clone stem cells, and he later admitted that he had fabricated those experiments, as had a man named Cheon at Bell Labs who reproduced the same graph in every single article he reproduced based on experiments that he had never done. He knew he was doing it wrong. He knew he wasn't being truthful. That's fraud. Well, Michael Gordon, thank you so very much for talking with us. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be here.
3: Michael Gordon is professor of history at Princeton University. He's the author of *The Pseudoscience Wars*, *Immanuel Velikovsky*, and *The Birth of the Modern Fringe*.
6: Hooray for Hollywood, that phony, Hollywood.
1: All right, everybody, this is a reality check. Put your credulity on the table.
3: Well, if there was ever a need for
1: uh, check, please. Could I have my reality check, please?
3: It's in Tinseltown, the home of skeptic Jim Underdown. Well, Jim will do whatever it takes to test the extraordinary claims that come the way of his investigations group. But he may have just topped himself with a television appearance on the Dr. Phil show. Now, Dr. Phil's producers said they were skeptical of psychic ability, and they want to evaluate those who claim to have it. So Jim agreed to their scheme of having him pose as a psychic himself. Can you see what's coming It's a Hollywood reality check.
7: Daytime television isn't exactly a stronghold for science and skepticism. So when the Dr. Phil show called me to get a skeptical point of view about psychics, I was game. A number of self-identified psychics would be on the show, and I could help test their extraordinary abilities. Plus, the producers told me that Dr. Phil himself was very skeptical. My independent investigations group has been testing psychics for over 13 years. But the Dr. Phil people had their own approach. They wanted me to pose as a psychic and read a group of people, which means sitting in front of strangers and receiving messages for them from the spiritual world. But I, of course, would be faking it, and this would be my very first time doing a reading. A professional psychic, someone who charges for this same service, would read the same group after me. I was pretty sure I could convince them I had psychic power, I've observed psychics in action and studied the techniques for what's called cold reading. Cold reading is mostly making generalizations and educated guesses about people while seeming to get this information from another realm. Okay, so in my reading, I asked an attractive young woman about relationships. It seemed to be a good bet. I'm feeling some relationship stress here. I think it might be you. Two different energies, two different men. Are you not in a relationship right now? No, I have a
1: boyfriend.
7: You have a boyfriend, but there's another man also who is showing some interest or had some past interest in you. I think I know who you're talking about. <laughs> is it an M or a J name? M. I asked if it were an M or a J name because there's zillions of Jims, Johns, Mikes, and Matt's out there. Her reaction later?
1: James picked up on a past boyfriend. He was able to pinpoint what letter his name uh, started with, and that was creepy.
7: I also turned my amazing powers to the subject of health and asked who has back pain. What are the odds that someone in a room full of people will have back trouble? Turns out pretty good. The results? During my 40-minute reading, three people I read were brought to tears through my connecting with their deceased loved ones. But in fact, I was tossing out common scenarios and hoping they'd stick. Now it was time for the professional psychic, who has thousands of readings under her belt, to read the same group. Initially, she had some trouble with the names of dead relatives. Pay attention to how she throws out names hoping for a connection.
6: There's an M initial male who passed. And I don't know where this goes, if it's to you or to somebody else. Okay, and then I'm supposed to bring up E as an Ed. Okay, let me keep going.
7: The psychic, Rebecca, had more misses in that segment than I had in my whole session. But she was good at making lots of guesses and quickly moving on after the misses. But here's the thing. No one watching at home got to evaluate for themselves our full performances because our 40-plus minute sessions were edited down to about two minutes. That heavily edited version is all that appeared on the Dr. Phil show. And when it aired, Dr. Phil weighed in. He reframed the question which originally was, could Jim convince strangers he was a psychic, to, who was the better psychic, Jim or Rebecca? She did get some good hits, but I never said I could cold read better than a psychic who's had thousands of hours of experience. My point, and the reason I appeared on the show, was that I could convince strangers I had psychic powers, and there's no doubt that some of them were convinced. The guess among scores of guesses the psychic made that seemed to impress Dr. Phil the most was when she said the word hummingbird. When she threw out the word hummingbird, she had no idea how that might be relevant to someone in the group. Would it mean that someone in the room likes hummingbirds, saw a hummingbird once, hums a lot? What? It it could be anything. Turns out it meant something to a woman in the second row.
0: I'm supposed to talk about a hummingbird. Oh my God, that's my tattoo. Nice.
7: But hummingbird was one in a long series of words the psychic had mentioned hoping to connect with the audience. This one did. See, if the psychic had had genuine abilities, why did she simply say, I sense a blue and red hummingbird tattoo on the left shoulder of the woman in the second row that she got when she was 12 in New Orleans. Now that would have been impressive. So the next time you sit down for a psychic reading, ask for specifics that just apply to you. Now I'm sensing, I'm sensing hunger. Someone out there is thinking about food. Does dinner mean anything to anyone? How about lunch? Jim Underdown is executive
3: director at the Center for Inquiry in Los Angeles.
2: I see... I see, well, who knows what I see? I mean, I have no idea. But that ignorance may be my strongest suit. Why the I don't have the faintest is the driving force of science. It's skeptic check on big
0: picture science, but don't take our word for it. So this is History Uncovered, and I'm Kalina. And
4: I'm Austin. We are the co-hosts of the show.
0: History Uncovered is a podcast presented by All That's Interesting, where we both are writers. We cover all sorts of topics, true crime, unsolved mysteries, history, folklore, the paranormal, you name it.
4: We've been doing this now for more than 100 episodes, covering a wide range of topics, and probably something that's bound to be interesting for everyone out
0: there. Absolutely. And in addition to our normal episodes, we also do a History Happy Hour, about the recent news in the world of history and archaeology, which we cover daily on the site, as well as important historical anniversaries.
4: We also have done some special series. We've done one on the Titanic, doing one on Jack the Ripper, Mm -hmm. done one about some famous UFO sightings. So if all of that sounds like something that might be interesting to you and you like having a good time, learning new things, and maybe maybe laughing or just (laughs) groaning at some bad puns, check out History Uncovered everywhere you get your podcasts.
2: So science is not just a straightforward walk down the yellow brick road to truth. And as a result, yes, sometimes it's exciting and invigorating, other times it's monotonous or exasperating. Sometimes it's rewarding and sometimes it's just humbling. Because when you get right down to it, scientists are dealing with really big questions like, you know, how do cells divide or what's the definition of consciousness?
3: And scientists make mistakes along the way, as we've heard. But neuroscientist Stuart Feierstein would say that those mistakes could be the best thing that happened to scientists. If you correct for them, they put you on the right path. But also, science is not just knowing what you know, but maybe more importantly, he says, knowing what you don't know.
2: He's fond of the quotation attributed to Confucius. The hardest thing of all is to find a black cat in a dark room especially if there's no cat that quotation opens the first chapter of his book ignorance how it drives science
3: stuart now you're the author of ignorance how it drives science let me begin by asking you what you don't know
5: oh my goodness well that's the whole show right there that'll take forever Uh, I don't know about so many things. Of course, I run a laboratory at Columbia University, and we study the brain. Particularly, we study the olfactory system, the sense of smell, and I'm attracted to the olfactory system and the sense of smell, not only because it's sort of cool, I have to admit, at least I think so, but because there's so much we don't know about it, uh, especially compared to many of the other sensory systems, in particular vision, for example.
3: I'm going to push you on this a little bit. Mm -hmm. Give me a question, something that you don't know about the olfactory system.
5: Ah, well, we still don't quite understand in the olfactory system how it is we're able to detect such a wide variety, such a diversity of chemicals and such a large number of them, small molecules, which we typically call odors, of course. But there are well over 100,000 of these molecules that we know and probably more that we don't yet know. And we have no clear idea, really, how the brain sorts all this information out.
3: In, in that case, you're asking questions about a, a field that um, you you study and you do research in. I'd I'd like you to ask a couple questions and betray or or flaunt your ignorance in another area. Can you give me something that you don't know about, say, astronomy or cosmology?
5: Well, of course, it's hard to know what I don't know about some fields. Part of the idea of ignorance is that it takes some practice to get to it. Um, So you really do have to know a few things maybe to begin with to get to ignorance. So I would say, of course, that that's really the way the arrow points. Most people would say, well, you begin in ignorance and then you learn some things and that leads to knowledge. But I would say the more important direction of the arrow is that that knowledge, the better the knowledge is, the more it points to ignorance, the more it tells you what it is you don't know. One question in cosmology that I don't know, um, well, I guess I don't know where the dark matter is. But nobody knows that of course so i think that's probably the burning question in cosmology the idea of dark matter and dark energy and this weird thing that that over 90 percent of the matter in the universe we're not we can't be sensible of it we have no idea where it is or what it is it may be all around us it, it may be put off in a corner somewhere but we don't know we just know there's not enough of it to explain gravity
3: Well, I'm pressing you on this because I think one of the points of your book is that we need to feel more comfortable asking these kind of questions. Uh, Scientists do, but all of us do, being able to ask what it is that we don't know and we'd like to know more of. And as you just alluded to, there are different kinds of ignorance. There's the ignorance because you haven't bothered to look up or do any research on something of some basic facts. But then there's a another kind of ignorance that we should feel proud about? And, and what are the two different kinds of ignorance that you talk about?
5: Well, of course, there's, there is the first kind, like you said, that's just sort of stupidity or a willful uh, willful stupidity, uh, ignoring facts and data and things of that nature. But then there's the better kind of ignorance, I think, what, what has been called thoroughly conscious ignorance, uh, the kind of ignorance that leads to better questions, that leads us down interesting paths, that leads us to explore more deeply Uh, what it is we think we know already. And that kind of ignorance, this thoroughly conscious ignorance, that's really what makes science go forward. That's what we all care about.
3: Well, isn't it somewhat intuitive, though, to say that science is driven by ignorance, in other words, by, by what we don't know?
5: Of course, it is intuitive. In some ways, it's almost trivial. Of course, science is about what we don't know. But is that the way we teach it? Certainly not. We teach from huge textbooks. We use encyclopedias. I fear that the the general public feels that they have no access to science anymore because it's this huge pile of facts. So somehow or another, I think we've come to a model of science to believe in a, a kind of science that I call the accumulation version of science. It is this huge, impregnable pile of facts to which we keep adding new ones every day. So I do teach a class called Ignorance now at Columbia, in which I invite scientists to come in and talk to students for two hours in an evening about everything they don't know, or at least some of the things they don't know, and what it is about those particular things that's important to them, why not knowing this particular thing is more important than not knowing that particular thing. Because how a scientist makes the choice of what question he or she will ask is really the key to their career and the success of their career probably as well.
3: Well, there's an example that you cite in the book about how keeping the right kind of open mind can lead to these better questions. And you talk about the work of Diana Reese, who studies Mm. dolphins. And how is it that she approaches her work with dolphins that you find an example of sort of brilliant question asking?
5: So the interesting thing about her work, I, I guess I should say, by the way, because apparently it's not so clear in the book, although I never tried to hide it, that she's my wife as well. <laughs> so that, you you that did might not... hide it well. Well, she's in the acknowledgments. If you check the acknowledgments, I acknowledge her as my wife. But I, but that's not really what I wanted to talk about in the in the book and her work. So, But it turns out she is my wife. But she came to the ignorance class one evening. I roped her into it, and she talked quite a bit about this. And I do think it's a perfect example of it. Her interest is in dolphins and in dolphin cognition. What is it that they're thinking? Do they think? Uh, What could a dolphin mind be doing? They have these big, huge brains. They seem to have complicated social structures and are able to participate in complex behaviors. They learn, they do all sorts of interesting mental things. The question is, what's going on in there? Is it anything like what goes on in our heads or is it something totally different? And the way she approaches this is, to let the dolphins try and give her an answer so you could try and do all kinds of tests and stick electrodes. well you can't stick electrodes in their head it's against the law but even if it weren't she wouldn't do that um and and you wouldn't really learn anything much i think in the end either you wouldn't learn what's going on in that brain but Her idea is to give them what she calls choice and control. So if you set up an experiment such that the dolphin can do certain things on its own and make choices and control its environment and then make choices about controlling its environment, then they begin to tell you something about what's going on in their head.
3: So in one case, one of the experiments she did is she was teaching the, the dolphin something or other. And I, I don't remember what it was, but she would feed it uh, parts of a fish, the, the front end of the fish or the middle end, but not the tail, because she soon learn, learned that the dolphins don't love the tail of the fish. And that it there were certain times when she would give a time out to the dolphin, where she would stand back 10 feet and not interact with it. And for a playful dolphin, <laughs> that yes. feels, feels like a child when you're sent to your room, I assume, something it's like exactly,
5: that. It's exactly what we do with children. <laughs> we give them timeouts when they've misbehaved.
3: And so what happened next in this experiment?
5: Well, so what was interesting about it was she developed this relationship with this dolphin and had learned, as you say, the dolphin didn't like the tails because they had these spines on them. And so when the dolphin was doing this particular behavior she was working with it on, she would reward it with the fish now and again, that sort of thing. And then one time by accident, she fed it a, uh, a tail, a tail had slipped into the bucket of fish after she'd cut them up. And so she threw the tail, and the dolphin got the tail in its mouth, spit it out, and immediately swam across the pool to the other side of the pool about 10 feet away and took a vertical position in the pool. Not a typical, but not an uncommon position for a dolphin to take to sort of set Themselves up vertically in the water, and Diana Reese uh, realized was just standing there now with this bucket of fish, and she realized that the dolphin had essentially given her a timeout for giving her for giving the dolphin the wrong piece of fish
3: by doing physically what she had been doing to the dolphin. That's which right. Was to stand back ten feet and just stare at the dolphin, and now this remarkable animal was mimicking her.
5: Yes, I'd say it's even deeper than mimicking. I'd say that the dolphin had come to understand some sense of relationship, what the rules of a relationship were.
3: And and how is this an example of reframing the sort of questions you're asking in that the sort of questions she asked after that had changed, how so?
5: That's right, because I think she realized at that moment that instead of using behavioral kinds of approaches with rewards of food or other sorts of things for the, for the dolphin, that the animal itself, the creature itself, had something to tell her, and that she just had to set things up properly for the dolphins to tell her what was on their mind, as it were, rather than trying to extract it by some complicated behavioral sort of paradigm. You're really letting the animal give you a glimpse I think is the word that Professor Reese likes to use, a glimpse of its inner life. And if you're clever enough and observant enough, then a glimpse will be enough.
3: And sometimes if you're too focused on what you're trying to extract, you miss those moments that could open up entire worlds.
5: I think that's precisely the point. That's an extremely important point. I say in the book at some point, maybe I make an overstatement that I hate hypotheses. Maybe that's an overstatement, but I don't really care for the idea of a hypothesis in science. And in fact, most good scientists don't really work with a hypothesis. We, we poke around. We screw around. We play around. We look into things. But, but a hypothesis can often bias your viewpoint, can bias what you see as good data and what you dismiss as bad data, instead of having a, as open, um, uh, uh, as, as willingly open a mind as possible.
3: One of your, if not hypotheses, but one of your mm-hmm. ideas, uh, in the book is that we fear ignorance um, as individuals, in part because now we live in a world where there is so much information at our fingertips. Right, you're mm-hmm. supposed to have command of answers for everything, and who hasn't been at a at a dinner with kids when someone jumps up and googles a question that came up <laughs> at dinner time in the middle of dinner, and we have a hard time saying I don't know.
5: Yes, but it's the most crucial three words that you can utter at any point in your life, it seems to me, from the time you're a little child, right through to maybe the last three words would be best to utter just just before you pop off, because I don't know is the beginning of something, and I know is the end of something. So I guess it's a little scary to not know certain things, of course, but, but it's much more interesting to not know there's so much more. I've always said this about science. One of the things that attracts me to it is that there's so much more I don't know than I do know. I feel that there's a great deal of job security here.
3: But doesn't it make you feel frustrated at times? Don't you want to get to a point in your life where you feel like you have command of a certain set of, I don't know, ideas or facts, which certainly you do as a neuroscientist, but does it feel to have so much open-ended? Do you feel like, I don't know, that...
5: Overwhelmed a bit?
3: Overwhelmed.
5: Well, I guess in some ways, yes. But in other ways, I like to think of ignorance as sort of not very different in some ways from infinity. You know, infinity whittles us all down to about the same size. It doesn't really matter whether you're a 5'4", or six 6'4", or six 6'8". Uh, when you compare that to infinity, really, it's kind of all in the same scale, right? And ignorance is kind of the same way, I think, about knowledge. It whittles us all down to about the same size, because we can all ask a question, and we can all understand the question, which is what I like about ignorance.
3: Stuart Firestein, thank you very much for speaking with us.
5: It was my pleasure. Great conversation. Thank you so much.
3: Stuart Firestein is a neuroscientist and chair of the biology department at Columbia University. He is the author of Ignorance, How It Drives Science.
7: Don't know much about history Don't know much biology do know much about a science book
3: well, Seth, what is one big subject that you're ignorant of in astronomy, which you know a well, lot Well,
2: there from? are many, of course, but I think that the most fascinating right now is this, this idea that there may have been other universes before ours and others to come.
3: Thanks to our non-fumbling and bumbling production team, Gary Niederhoff, Barbara Vance, and Rina Lesko.
2: Also, support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute. And a big thanks also to our listeners.
3: Your ears have been attuned to our monthly look at critical thinking, Skeptic Check. This time around, science blunders. You can find more Big Picture Science at iTunes and through the link on our website. And while you're online, why not go to Facebook and become a fan of the program? You can leave your comments there as well.
2: If you're a podcast listener but you prefer over-the-air radio because, after all, you feel it's more reliable check out the yes. listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, consider letting them know that you like the program. Uh, excuse me, waiter? Yes? Um, I'm looking over this reality check. Yes, sir? And it says confirmation bias. I didn't order the confirmation bias. Are you certain, sir? I distinctly ordered the rational special. Flawed evidence, marinated in logical fallacy, tossed into confusion of correlation with causation, that along with a side of raw oversimplification and a bowl of unsubstantiated assertion. I know what I ordered. Of course. I will remove it from your reality check. Thank you. My mistake. It seems the confirmation bias was ordered by that table. We we ordered the confirmation bias.
3: Yeah, what he said.
0: Skeptic Check is brought to you thanks to a generous grant from the Trimberger Family Foundation. At the Trimburger Family Foundation, we hold that skepticism is a lamp that lights the way to truth. Trimburger.org. Tech moves fast, so keep pace
2: with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more.